I think for science, for it to get these really inclusive chapter groups in the IPCC or to get inclusive people in the lab or in the field, there needs to be uh, just a way for academic research, science or, or otherwise, to be a livable thing that you can do and care about and be good at. And then you're also allowed to be a human being on top of that. And so that advice goes all the way up and down the chain. This is the Livable Future Podcast. I'm Katie Barker, and I'm here with my co-host, Cody Sanford. And to start this episode, we'd like to acknowledge that we're creating this podcast on the traditional and ancestral homeland of the Ute, Arapaho, and Cheyenne people. We'd like to honor these people and their contributions to the region. So I'm really excited about today's episode because we sat down and talked about the IPCC, for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is something that I had no idea existed (laughs) before I went back to school for environmental science. Despite the fact that it's actually existed since 1988, plays a key role in the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, and even won the Nobel Peace Prize back in 2007. So what it is this obviously intergovernmental collaboration between hundreds of scientists on doing essentially this massive literature review of all of the climate science and all of the environmental science that has been published. Then the scientists synthesized the peer-reviewed publications to get a comprehensive look at the state of the climate and probable outcomes of human-induced climate change. The IPCC releases these extensive reports every six to seven years, and this serves as a key resource on climate change impacts and informs decision-making globally from an international to a local level. On this episode of the Livable Future podcast, we dive into the elaborate writing process of the IPCC reports. We examine what biases might be present and how people who care about climate science can get involved. For this topic, we're thankful to be joined by Dr. Jessica O'Reilly, an associate professor at Indiana University and a cultural anthropologist. Anthropology is the study of our social systems and provides a context into cultures and subcultures. With Dr. O'Reilly's research specifically centered on the decision-making processes of the IPCC report, it's the perfect guest for this topic. A special welcome to Dr. O'Reilly, And again, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Before we begin with our questions, could you familiarize us with your research? So I am an IPCC researcher, a climate researcher, but I come from uh, questions about science and policy from the perspective of an anthropologist. So all three of my degrees are in cultural anthropology. And so I'm really interested in human relationships with the environment. Now, traditionally, our discipline looks at indigenous people, marginalized communities, and that's been important for for bringing diverse voices to understanding environmental perspectives. But there's also a 
a pretty obvious power differential there as well. I decided to study scientists as a cultural group. So I look at scientists as a subculture uh, with a set of cultural values that they have been trained or disciplined into. And then I look, uh, I observe and talk to them about how they do their work. So we can look at it as ritual, as cultural process, and then how they turn their scientific research into decision-making, environmental policy, environmental management decisions. So my dissertation research was on Antarctica and the translation of Antarctic science into policy, generally at the Antarctic Treaty Meeting. And then I shifted into climate research generally. So the project that I've been doing since 2018 is uh, an ethnography of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And I've been to every single lead author meeting so far, and there are sort of special breakout sessions that they had um, in response to the pandemic as well. I've went to the approval plenary for Working Group One report, the report that's spoken about here. It was virtual, it was two weeks long. And so I've been following them from the moment the scientists had the outline of the report up through this meeting where they're handing over the finished uh, approved report to the policymakers. And I will also do that with working group two, working group three, and the synthesis report. And then I would be done with the data collection phase. Now I've been observing at all of these meetings and taking notes. And then I've also done interview series with some of, with a, a selection of authors. And it's me and uh, three other ethnographers, postdocs, who are on my team. And so we have been interviewing at intervals the, the same scientists as they move through this process. So that's just a little overview. So Jessica, could you tell us a little bit about the process behind IPCC and sort of what it takes to make this report? The panel itself is governments. So it's government members who belong to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And so they really create this outline of indicative bullet points that they give to the authors. And the authors are also approved by the government. So there's a lot of government involvement over who's writing the report and what the general shape of the report is going to be at the outset. It's also a UN and WMO body. It's United Nations Environment Program and WMO. And they also have other considerations for thinking about authorship. So they're thinking about geographical representation. They're thinking about age uh, and career stage of the scientists, disciplinary expertise, of course, gender balance. So they're trying, you know, the UN cares about this sort of stuff. So they try to make the report authors sort of reflect the world uh, and not sort of what you think of as a climate scientist, which may be a older white male from the global north, and there are plenty of them in the IPCC. But uh, one of the first surprises when I started attending the meetings was how many junior mid-career authors there were, uh, people from the global south, developing countries. That doesn't mean everybody's ideas make it in equally, but the representation is, was more diverse than I expected it to be. And then the governments kind of leave the authors alone, the scientists alone for a period of a couple of years while they go through a couple of different drafts of the assessment report. So they do a zero order draft after the first lead author meetings. There are four lead author meetings. 
And then they have a first order draft after the second lead author meeting. And that the zero order draft is just reviewed by IPCC insiders. And the first order draft is the first one that goes out to review. And anyone who wants to can sign up for a review to be a reviewer. So that does mean they might get reviews from climate skeptics, deniers, contrarians, uh, people from think tanks, but usually it's mostly university professors uh, who are signing up to review these. And so they are required by the process of the IPCC to re respond to every single review comment they get. They get tens of thousands of review comments, and they especially spend a lot of care uh, with those sort of skeptic or denier comments, because all of the comments and responses also become public. After the third lead author meeting, then they do a second order draft, and that goes to governments and experts again. So here's where the governments start coming back in, although they usually ask their national scientists to review it. This is where governments are also looking at how the science is, is presented in relation to their national interests. So often this is, are we getting enough information about Congo and drought in Congo? Are we getting enough information for Antigua and Barbuda on sea level rise? Is this so often it's about representation? But of course, as you can imagine, sometimes it's a little more complex. Saudi Arabia is interested in how much time they have to transform their entire oil dependent economy, you know? So, so they might be thinking about how things are represented and how that representation may affect how quickly uh, the world is going to insist on transitioning. And then there's a, a final response. They respond to all of those comments and then there's a final government draft. And this goes to the a, approval plenary. So for working group one, which are the physical scientists, that was in late July, early August of this year. It was virtual the first time that ever happened. And I know you guys know, and I thought the summary for policymakers, I was just given a hard copy. It's a shorter document, it's like 40, 60 pages, but they go line by line and figure by figure through all of that to approve sentence by sentence. So that summary for policymakers not only has a lot of scientific power, but it's also approved by all of these governments. And so including those that are, uh, you know, a little bit difficult. I want to talk about the collaboration process a little bit more it's sort of staggering to think about so many different countries with varied backgrounds and interests coming together in a report like the ipc summary for policymakers this seems very convoluted and probably messy on some level could you go into more detail on the collaboration process yes i mean so it's sort of a fusion of scientific workshops academic workshops that there are all sorts of group dynamic issues at play, uh, protocols. I mean, the co-chair of working group, very intent on process and representation and encouraging authors. So so they're actually very careful about, about that sort of stuff. But yeah, it's messy. There's, I mean, these are all professors. I mean, so it's like 300 professors writing a report. We can barely do a faculty meeting with 15, you know. Everyone's got to give a lecture. Everyone gets their their egos, you know, tied into their ideas. That's their whole identity, right? And so when you have these incredibly smart, powerful 
people. Yeah, it's of course messy, but the writing the report is more is academic. And so there's not that sort of negotiating. Instead, the negotiation they'll do is what's the best way to present science, especially if it's uncertain. That's where it gets tricky is that when there's uncertainty or new science or something like that. What's the best way to to assess this knowledge in a way that is useful for policymakers? So they're always thinking about the user audience. You know, there are some people who try to get their ideas in and there's some reviewers that are just like, cite me, cite me, cite me, cite me in the review comments. But a lot of it is, is I mean, I would say it is very well-intentioned, deliberative care uh, put into uh, responding to the reviewers and presenting the science to be useful for policymakers. But yeah, there's controversy. Usually after the, the reports are published, some disgruntled authors write something, but nothing that I've seen so far, no disgruntled public uh, comments out of working group one. It was great to hear you say that the UN really tries to have a good balance of who's taking part in this report and have a representative group. But even still, I wonder what voices are we missing and what barriers are there to inclusion and what biases might we have in this report because of it? They really try hard to get represent gender balance, different career stages, uh, disciplinary balance, and global uh, all the UN regions. So there's a really, really explicit attempt to get people represented in the hopes that those folks are more familiar with local literature. But that doesn't mean that it's all, that everything's represented well. It's harder to get things published when you're not at a Global North institution for various reasons, language, research funding, just knowing the shorthand of how to present information in a way that marks you as expert. There are all these sort of cultural signifiers that lead to gaps in the in research. By the way, all of the meetings are conducted in English, and I don't know how people who speak English as their third language even do it because it's exhausting to listen to with English as your first language because it's so technical and specific. So yes, there are gaps. And I think I think the authors try to be really clear about that. They're not trying to hide it. They uh, will show where there's uh, limited publications, limited agreement, um, there how much how much evidence there is, and and part of that is sort of uh, global differences in in availability for scientific research and funding. So yes, they have it. They're really aware of it. They're constantly trying to find new ways to improve upon it. But a lot of that then is going back to the burden of authors from developing countries who are also at a disadvantage in terms of funding and things we don't even think about, like internet, things we don't think about it in, in the global north, like internet capabilities. One of the scientists from a developing country who I interviewed as, as, as the pandemic was happening, I didn't know she did this. I just assumed everyone could Zoom, but she couldn't access her office, which had good internet. She bought a separate SIM card to, in, to do my interview with me. And like she had to like walk to a village store and get that SIM card and 
She had to do all this extra labor in order for me. I, I hadn't even imagined it. Electric outages. And then another thing you have to deal with is the power of your passport and visa issues. You know, in, if you have a U.S. passport, we can get almost any place pretty easily. But some countries to uh, to travel almost anywhere is this like weeks long, expensive. Sometimes you have to tr travel to your national capital. If you don't live there, then you have to pay for a transit and a hotel and all of that in order to get your visa. And that is an incredible barrier to participation that us with our very powerful passports that really ease us in almost everywhere, we don't even think about the sort of bureaucratic lots that make it so difficult to even get in the room together to discuss the science. And then you're asked to be responsible for representing your entire country's worth or entire region in some instances worth of, of literature. So there's all sorts of layered barriers there. That's definitely really a lot. I've always been so impressed with the people that are doing good science in English when English might even be their third language. I can't imagine trying to write scientific language in Spanish, my second language. So, yeah, I'm just really amazed at what people overcome. There's recently been a push in the general science community to include different ways of knowing. Have you seen that with the IPCC? Are they trying to include indigenous and local voices, for example? So there's another intergovernmental panel called IPBES, Intergovernmental Panel on Biological and Ecosystem Services. And they started much more recently and within the past decade. And they were really able to learn from the IPCC's mistakes. And one of the things they corrected right away was including indigenous people in the assessment report from the get-go. And so IPCC has been playing catch up with this. And it's hard to, I mean, working group one, it's, I mean, this is very much model projections, like data observations. Working group two, though, is impacts, adaptation, vulnerability. And that's where you are going to see a little bit more representation, but inclusion of indigenous people as authors too. Like, it's not just enough to mention it in a, a sentence, but trying to to get the people uh, there as assessors and part of the process, because then they can go and translate that back to their communities. Too. So working and they have a standard best practices sheet for how to include indigenous knowledge, because it's also some of this knowledge isn't meant for public publication, you know. So you want to make sure that this is information that the communities that the knowledge originates from is uh, appropriate. Uh, okay to be published and that people who uh, who belong to the communities that the knowledge emanates from are, are part of the process as well as contributing authors or, or something like that. So they're trying, when you're talking about climate models and then different cosmological or ontological or epistemological approaches to knowledge, uh, it's really difficult to make those different kinds of knowledge mensurate too. But they're trying, particularly in working group two, they have regional chapters. So when you're organizing knowledge in that way, it can be a little more intuitive 
to have uh, different types of knowledge in the report than when you're writing a climate projection chapter and it really is about computer models. So you were just explaining how this science requires a high level of understanding. I guess I'm curious how the IPCC is communicating this information to non-scientists. Yeah, I, I think the IPCC actually takes communications really seriously. So there's actually a piece that underlies the whole report called the technical summary. And that's the most difficult to understand. That's And that gives them the opportunity, if you need to put something really methodological for other experts who are reading this to understand, that goes into the technical summary. And then there's the chapters. The summary for policymakers is meant to be readable and understandable, but we all have read this. And it's IPCC language has its own sort of language. Once they bring the calibrated language about uncertainty and likelihood statements, statements of confidence. And the the long brackets that refer back to sections of the chapter, all of that work, uh, which makes the language difficult for you know a protester in the street to read, is meant to be scientifically rigorous, so that you find you can see the where it tracks back onto the science. And when they say likely, they mean a certain range of probability. They're not using the language in a sloppy way. But they do have communication specialists. They have professionals. There's a technical support unit for each working group that that helps clarify language. And and then um, they've worked really hard. This uh, assessment report cycle, writing so there's fact sheets. So there's like one pagers, and those can be on regions as well. And so those are available on the IPCC webpage. So that's one page, and it really is meant to to speak to more public communities than policymakers because the summary for policymakers really is meant for policymakers uh, but they have they have a frequently asked questions that's very readable with some cool infographics and they have a whole team of graphics specialists who they hire that's new this time too so their graphics have really improved because even those can be illegible I think uh, and so, so there are products on the IPCC webpage that are even distilled from summary for policymakers. They do a lot of outreach events. They have videos. You can access their slide deck on, online. I always pull it off because I always have to give a science talk and why not use just the stuff the best people made instead of uh, just pulling it from other places. So I think... I hear complaints about the summary for policymakers, and I understand it because I assign that to my students, and it's such a weird, like if you try to read it out loud, it sounds crazy. So they they provide all the, those materials in the hopes that the authors, and that's part of the reason why they pick select authors from all of the countries, is that they really hope that the authors based in those different places and communities will then promote the work in a way that is culturally appropriate to the the populations that they're trying to do outreach to. And the IPCC has funds to support these outreach uh, projects. And so there is some attempt at that. But also all of this is freely available. So people who are communications experts, but maybe less involved directly with the IPCC, 
And remind me to tell you about the IPCC's budget because it's amazing. People who are, uh, you know, you can take these materials and do this interpretive work. You can make a children's book or, and they do pay to have it, the SPM, the Summary for Policymakers, into different languages. And so uh, that also, I would encourage uh, people who are interested in, you know, doing outreach to farmers, doing outreach to elementary school children to contact the IPCC and, and be really willing to work with them. As someone who really cares about the public's understanding of climate and environmental science, I think what the IPCC is doing is pretty much remarkable. You said we should ask about the IPCC's budget. So here's the thing about their budget. It's $4 million a year. It's IU, so Indiana University, which is a public state college. It's large. Our budget is more than a billion dollars a year. Like it is actually wild how like IPCC is so incredibly powerful and influential, but almost everybody who is an author is a volunteer. They're not paid. The scientists are not paid to do this. And their national governments pay for their travel. So the IPCC doesn't pay for them to travel. There's just the small TSUs that are actually and they're temporary employees of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So I think that's really, um, people often ask, why doesn't the IPCC do this, this, and this? It is this incredible. It would be really great to actually try to monetize the amount of volunteer labor from these experts into these reports because it is, uh, and it might be $8 million. Anyways, it's peanut in terms of the in terms of the budget and so while they do hire comms people they're sort they they sort of then now the ar6 is ending they'll sort of break up and reassemble with all new people for the seventh assessment report and so that's good for innovation it's good to get to keep from being like old and creaky and uh dependent on keeping the institution alive it gives fresh ideas but that also means that there's not a huge institutional infrastructure to do the kind of work that 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 could be done. So I just wanted to point that out because uh, they are so incredibly powerful. You would think there's this whole machine behind them, but it's really a lot of volunteer labor um, that's being poured into this. I also just want to affirm that $4 million is really not much for a project of this scale. First of all, that's $4 million spent by all of the governments involved, not just a single government. And second of all, the U.S. spent $35.6 billion on sciences, research, etc. last year, of which $21.5 billion went to NASA. And even all of those, like in billions of dollars, is way less than 1% of our GDP. On another note, I'm wondering to what degree do countries advocate for specific issues to be included on the report that have to do with what they're experiencing on the ground or their specific political problems? Absolutely. Yeah. So some of the conversation is about other goals and aims. Absolutely. So every national delegation, I'm on the U.S. delegation to the Antarctic Treaty meetings, and you don't just show up. 
we there's an interagency review of all the positions that the that the government is going to take and a strategy for that. So this is and all countries sort of replicate a, a similar process. And so some of the aims may be about improving the text uh, at the adoption plenaries, but some of it may be about being able to report back to your national governments about we were able to make all of these interventions on behalf of our country. You know, we, you can see we spoke up this many times. We got this issue on the table. Uh, we tried to forward it. We can refer back to mentioning it. We've been mentioning it now for two decades or something like that. So absolutely, there are sort of polycentric circles of, uh, of discursive meaning in these interventions that delegates are making. So the IPCC is a global report with political implications. I understand how the science requires massive computer models to analyze. So my question is, who's paying for these reports and the science in it? That's a great question. So the IPCC is assessing the research published elsewhere. So they're not conducting their own research. And so what they do with these uh, assessment report cycles every five to seven years is they pull together all of the new publications, assess it, and then communicate what is new in climate science on each chapter's topics. So who pays for the research is really a big deal. Because a lot of the stuff coming out of Working Group One are these massive climate models, like you said, like require still rooms of computers, even though our, our laptops are so powerful now. And so those climate models are really centered in the places that you would expect them to be. There's several in the US, several in Europe. I think there's one or two in India. There's a couple in Japan, a couple in China, but there's gaps, right? And so not every country has a climate model. And then they uh, organize their model runs on scenarios. And it's an expert group from the IPCC that decides what the input scenarios will be. These were the SSPs that they were talking about. And then all the different models run these different scenarios. And that's CMIP 6, uh, the Climate Model Intercomparison Project 6, which aligns with AR6, right? And so uh, all of those then, they have all these model results. They have to be published before the IPCC then can assess them. And so they're waiting for the, the publications to come in and then they sort of synthesize all of the publications from the different models around the, around the world. So who's paying for these really is governments and which governments have the amount of money to spend on that is, uh, you know, a historical arrangements of power and wealth that we're all familiar. Quickly, I just want to say the way you're able to explain the complexities of this complicated report has really clarified my understanding. Now, my mind is going back to when you said the scientists are volunteering their time. Why do you think they put so much effort into this report and what do you think they might gain? My sense is a lot of them really enjoy, they got into this work for the same reasons you guys are getting into this work. They love the science and they know that it can make a difference, that their expertise can make a difference. And so, so they really enjoy 
get into focus really concretely with another group of global experts and get to know those folks and really focus on their science for a couple of years. And then you walk away with this incredible understanding of, of, uh, of, of your topic, you know, and really what the state of the, the science is. You get publications out of it, not only the IPCC report, but sometimes they'll um, chapter groups will write some publications on methodology or something like that in order to assess it. So they get a lot of publications. But then I think it's also really important for them to remember the importance of scientific contributions to decision making at the political level, which is why they're willing to be here to talk to policymakers. And a lot more of them are promoting the IPCC reports to their home governments, whether national or subnational and being sort of spokespeople that way. So I see, I think they see it as a, as a way to help the, the cause to use their skill set to, to help decision makers in their bit to contributing toward the solution. How would you recommend junior scientists start getting involved with the IPCC process? As a young scientist, there are several ways to be involved, and I encourage you to go to that meeting to to talk with the IPCC people directly. You can sign up to be a reviewer. You can ask faculty members in the classes that you're in when the reports are coming out. So working group two and three, when they come out, your class uh, or a, a student organization, you guys could meet together and review and submit review comments to the IPCC so you can still participate in the process uh, that way through reviews. As AR7 starts to organize and they release the chapter author lists, I would encourage uh, junior scientists, graduate students, is who I'm talking about here, to contact the coordinating lead authors of the chapters that align with your expertise. They hire chapter scientists, who I believe are also volunteers, but these are people who get to go to the meetings and participate in helping help with the chapter. And they're, they're incredible. And that's a really awesome opportunity. And so uh, it's always like you can reach out to the CLAs to see if there are chapter science opportunities that way. Yeah, going through the review process or trying to get in as a chapter scientist. And also once you have publications, sending those to the chapter teams to make sure that your literature is included. You know, when we all do lit reviews, it's easy to know in the top of your mind who the like top 10 in the field are, but it's really important for them to get good representation of literature from junior scholars whose names might be less recognizable and from people uh, publishing from institutions in the global South. There still is a, a gap or a lack of representation in, from some countries. And so just sending along uh, any publications or including suggestions for publications when you review. And I wouldn't recommend being an author before you're tenured if you're an academic because it takes so much time and you have to be nominated. You can nominate yourself, but you would want to wait until you until you don't sabotage your own personal career in the sur service of climate assessment. So my final question comes in two parts. What do you believe scientists are doing well and how can they improve? What scientists do really well and what could they improve on? 
actually think they're really good communicators. And I've been working with scientists for a couple of decades now, and it's their ability to communicate and to find leaders who are skilled at communication has really improved. I'm I'm really impressed. I was taking notes on Valerie's lecture in Substa on how I can do better science communication through them. I think that they're earnest and care about what they're doing, and I admire them very much for that. And they will exhaust themselves to get the science right and to do a good job. And what they could do better is figure out ways to make this less exhausting. There's sort of an expectation that you have to martyr yourself to your research or to completing this work. And that expectation is ableist and it has particular ideas about who's at home helping whom. And I think for science, for to get these really inclusive chapter groups in the IPCC or to get inclusive people in the lab or in the field, there needs to be uh, just a way for academic research, science or or otherwise, to be a livable thing that you can do and care about and be good at. And then you're also allowed to be a human being on top of that. And so that advice goes all the way up and down the chain. Yeah, that's certainly a fact that they start as early. Yeah, you can tell that it's a cultural value the way that it's valorized and expected that you sacrifice all of your time to an extent your well-being in order to do this work. And if you don't, that means you may be less committed to the research. And that's illogical and it's not sustainable. Dr. O'Reilly, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I personally have learned so much more about the process of the IPCC report. Do you have any final comments or anything else you'd like to add? Not that I can think of. These were good questions. It was a good conversation. It's fun to talk. Thank you for being interested in my work. Thank you so much, Jessica. I learned so much from this conversation. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We hope that you learned as much as we did. And if you'd like to learn more, we're going to have some resources on our website. So check it out. That's livablefuturepodcast.com. And you can also follow us on social media and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.